Hi, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. Navigating the Ouija board of your mind. Oh, this is an S. It must be Stacy. <laughs> Max, you know, I'm so excited to get to the second half because you interviewed Michael Hudson. You already did that first, so we're so excited to get to that that we're actually going to have this half quite short for the extended interview with Dr. Michael Hudson about debt. I can't Jubilees. take the excitement. Of course, he is an economist and a historian, an economic historian, and he has amazing stories. But our history is being written today, and that is Turkey calls U.S. wild wolves vows to abandon dollar and trade. Turkish President Erdogan on last Sunday vowed Ankara would pursue non-dollar transactions and trade with Russia and other countries, accusing the U.S. of behaving like wild wolves. He was in Kyrgyzstan and talking to some uh, entrepreneurs and business people. And what he said exactly was, quote, America behaves like wild wolves. Don't believe them. Using the dollar only damages us. We will not give up. We will be victorious. <laughs> of course, those are always famous last words. But the fact is, again, this is something that we've been covering on Kaiser Report for years and signaling and warning about that the, the end of the dollar, the, the, our hegemony around the world is um, basically unlike previous empires through that debt, through that channel of debt, through that SWIFT system, through the U.S. dollar, which is just an item of debt, an IOU. So we've, able, we've been able to control the world through that. We've had that power to force everybody to comply with it. But as soon as you wield your power, your power th thus inevitably be begins to diminish because of the hubris. Erdogan, it joins the bum of the month club. <laughs> Whether it's Gaddafi or Saddam, they all said we're getting out of the dollar and we're gonna price oil in euros. Dollar's bad. Hugo Chavez, another bum of the month who got destroyed by the dollar. The current guy who's ever running Venezuela now is going to get destroyed by the dollar. Look, Turkey, instead of talking about the wolf, the wild wolves of America, stop crying, wolf. Grow, grow a pair and adopt crypto. Hard money. Real hard money. Oh, that's right. You're all talk, 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 talky, talky, talk. Well, you know, whatever Swiss bank account you have hidden away, just go there and shut up. Well, uh, allegedly, is, or made I made that up. Who cares? It doesn't matter. You're a peanut. Who cares? Just go away and shut up. Well, he is a member. Turkey is a member of NATO, and of course, uh, this uh, he's backed up by talk coming from Germany as well. Germany is always in the middle of whatever empires falling apart and a new one rising. So we'll see what happens in that. Um, it's just a signal. These are signals and perhaps like the others before him, he'll just be uh, destroyed. But the, the, the big wild card, of course, what most geopolitics and geoeconomics of the last 20 years is really about is the rise of China. And you could kind of see that in 2000. We as a nation gave up on our own people. That's when you see all the charts start to like fall apart for what wealth and income gap is, what the ordinary worker made, what sort of benefits we had. We saw the escalation in debts related to education and health care, i.e. the ordinary bottom 99.9% of the population had to pay big time if they wanted any access because we didn't, the, the elites didn't care about us anymore. So there, there is a question, Bloomberg.com is 
again, financial news, and they're looking at it, and they're asking, does China have what it takes to be a superpower? And they look at various um, aspects of it, whether they have their financial power, whether they have economic power, the military power, and the cultural power, i.e. the soft power. Obviously, they do not have the soft power that the U.S. does. The U.S. has Hollywood, and there are very few other areas of the world that have something even remotely similar where they could project this, uh, you know, amazing heroic story about themselves. But um, in terms of uh, regional, they do see by 2030 that it's, it's bizarre to consider America a regional power in Asia, <laughs> but they reckon by 2030 that China will definitely be the regional superpower, will no longer be the U.S. in that area due to their military might, uh, China's military might, and their um, economic might in the area. And? Well, so that, therefore the U.S., they, Bloomberg projects, will no longer be the regional power in Asia. So the other key question they look at is um, the long, whether it could be a superpower globally. And they said that part of the problem is that their one-child policy is about to really, um, the fact that they've had the one-child policy for decades, that they're no longer going to have the, um, the, the uh, workforce. And part of the reason for the One Belt, One Road policy is because of their absence of, of workforce. But because of that One Belt, One Road policy, they now have economic interests in vast swathes of the world. And this is a great chart to show. This is the road part. This is the maritime part. And one of our guests on our podcast recently pointed out that this is all subject to sanctions right now. Pakistan, Turkey, Iran, Russia. So those are all under U.S. sanctions as part of the One Belt, One Road policy in uh, China. Well, look, I mean, China becomes, uh, when they put a man on the moon, Okay, then American will take notice. And they'll be like, wow, who, what's China? There's a country called China? What? Maybe we should get our, you know, you mentioned culture there and soft power and the character of a nation. America, if it's faced with an existential threat like China becoming a superpower, will get its act together. And like we did during the Cold War after Russia put up Sputnik, uh, the U.S. landed on the moon. That's why I mentioned the moon. And um, look, if we have an existential crisis coming down the path, uh, guys like Trump and other entrepreneurial, you know, leaders will mobilize the country. And uh, I welcome this challenge because right now America doesn't have anybody else out there to play with. You know, we're kind of bored. We, it would be great if we had another superpower out there. So here's what um, Bloomberg says about that one belt run road policy as a result of the one child policy. Both to boost the long term prospects of its own economy and to extend its influence, China has embarked on what is probably the most ambitious foreign investment campaign in history. President Xi's Belt and Road Initiative extends from China to Western Europe and other parts of the world by land and sea. It performs some of the functions of Washington's large foreign aid budget. But more than that, it has the potential to create longer-term revenue, ties, and dependencies. Even if China's leaders don't want to become the next global superpower, the need to promote and protect such widespread investments could take them there. So the fact that they have these investments uh, unless the U.S. sanctions along that line there, and this is the most important, because clearly the, the U.S. is not concerned about maritime power. They know that they have all the aircraft landing carriers, uh, so they don't need to worry about that. They don't need to sanction these countries that China's uh, using the maritime. They need to sanction all those countries and prevent that from happening.
That is an expensive freaking project. That's like a lot of money to sustain. That's an empire that doesn't come cheap. And guess what funds it right now? U.S. dollars. And guess who's got like two trillion, three trillion? China. Guess who can turn off the spigot at any moment and put that country back 100 years? America. So don't tell me that they're going to freaking conquer the world because of a bunch of a squiggly lines going over the desert. It's not going to happen. Well, of course, the maritime route is all about oil, and energy is always the most important ingredient to become a superpower. So it's quite interesting to look at this final headline here about electric vehicles, because I think um, uh, China has the ability, unlike a democracy like America, to just act quick and with dictate, dictate how things should be. This is remarkable. Surging demand for electric vehicles. Global sales of electric vehicles cracked the 400,000 barrier in the second quarter rising 77% from a year earlier to 411,000, according to a report from Bloomberg NEF. China, with 225,000 units, not only maintained its lead, but outsold of the rest of the world combined. Europe accounted for 22% of electric vehicle sales in the quarter, with North America at 19%. So, um, you know, th this is an interesting thing to look at, to watch moving forward because you need energy to become a global superpower. What, and I, I kind of like that subtext of what Bloomberg said. I don't really think China really wants to be a global superpower. I think they want to be a regional one, but I don't, they certainly don't want a reserve currency. They don't want to replace the U.S. dollar with the U.N. because they have a huge population and an unruly population. So why would they want to have to run the trade deficits and thus uh, destroy their manufacturing base? in a way that America has had to do in order to keep the dollar as a reserve currency. All right. Well, um, you know, more, more to come on this story, obviously. We don't know uh, what their policies are, but we can see their data. We can see that they're, uh, they're pivoting from oil. They're pivoting from carbon. They're, they're, they're fast introducing nuclear power, solar, uh, wind, geothermal. They're, they're pivoting away from um, anything that they could be contained. Yeah, okay, so you're saying that, oh, they can move quickly. Uh, they have the ability to change direction in their economy because it's a top-down system. It's basically, you know, a, a very small cadre of powerful folks that run the entire country. It's not really a democracy, is it? But, you know, another name for this would be industrial policy. Countries have industrial policies. Japan had an industrial policy in it the It still 80s. does. So does Korea. <laughs> Okay, and they made them world-beating uh, manufacturers and exporters. And America has, I think, an ace up its sleeve in its uh, $1.6 trillion military budget. In other words, the leader of the United States can say, you know what, we're going to cut that in half, and we're going to put $700 billion to work tomorrow in doing uh, solar uh, or renewable energy projects. Now that fracking is dead, and provably, it's dead now that the New York Times said it was dead, even though we said it was dead five years ago, but now that they've, the paper of record says it's dead, so it's officially dead. And you take that huge chunk of money and you say, okay, we're going to do solar. We're going to do solar arrays across America. we got huge deserts. we got a lot of sunshine. We're going to create a lot of energy, renewable energy. And we're going to uh, take it into the 21st century. So, again, if China's going to awaken the monster, the beast, the dragon, the, the American entrepreneurial spirit, you know, the U.S. economy is benefiting by the fact that people are so encouraged by Trump, the consumer spending is up because 
they feel like this guy gives them confidence. Industrial production is up. Things are booming here. The latest figures from August is actually shows it up. Uh, you know, the economy is booming, and so are stock markets. They're coming, coming to life. You see, they're responding. They're responding to this. The existential threat is keep peeping over the parapet. And well, that's getting, interesting. Getting, getting prepared. Well, let's look at the future by talking to the historian uh, Michael Hudson in the second let's half. Let's talk to Dr. Michael Hudson in the second half. He knows stuff. Don't go away. Much more coming your way. Stay there. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to turn to Michael Hudson, author of many books, including his next one out this November. It's called, quote, and forgive them their debts. Okay, Michael Hudson, welcome back. Good to be here, Max. All right, Michael, your new book has a very long title, actually. It's called, and forgive them their debts, lending, foreclosure, and redemption from the Bronze Age finance to the Jubilee year. You have said uh, debts that cannot be repaid will not be repaid. Tell us about Jubilees. When did they start and uh, what do they look like? Well, I begun to write a history of debt cancellations uh, almost 40 years ago. Uh, and it, uh, in the process, I got all the way back to Sumer and Babylonia and uh, the biblical times and uh, joined the Harvard uh, faculty as in Babylonian archaeology. Uh, economic at the uh, Peabody Museum, which was its anthropology department, and I realized that, uh, amazing as it seems, nobody's written a history of debt uh, in the world. So I, I have, it's a part of a three-volume work, but this, this is the first volume, and it deals with how debt originated in the Bronze Age in Mesopotamia, and how every ruler of uh, Sumer and Babylonia, when they take the throne, their first act would be to proclaim a clean slate. They'd cancel the debts, they'd liberate people who were, impo who were sunk into bondage for debt, and they'd redistribute land that was uh, foreclosed on by creditors. Uh, in other words, what the Babylonian rulers would do, Hammurabi and his group, uh, Sumerians in the third millennium, Hammurabi and the Babylonians in the second millennium, were exactly uh, what the, uh, the Jews took over uh, Judaism took over in uh, the first millennium uh, when the uh, exiled Jews returned from Babylonia uh, into uh, uh, back into uh, Judea and uh, uh, applied this three-point uh, debt cancellation as the Jubilee year, and they wrote it into the very core of Leviticus, into the core of Mosaic law, and uh, that became uh, the whole, they rewrote the whole history of the Old Testament is a struggle between uh, debtor and creditor interests. Uh, the kings by the first millennium no longer were canceling the debts, uh, not only in uh, the Jewish lands, but in uh, the Mediterranean. They went over to the side of the uh, oligarchs uh, where they survived, uh, the creditors. Uh, and so uh, it was the re religious leaders that took debt cancellation out of the hands of the kings uh, and put that at the center of uh, the basic religion. And this was the case by the time of Jesus. And uh, we know now from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, based, uh, the whole uh, cult around uh, Milky Zadok, uh, that uh, debt cancellation was uh, a popular uh, pressure opposed by the leading uh, Jewish rabbis, uh, such as Hillel, who introduced the prose bull 
uh, saying we waive all the rights uh, un uh, under uh, the, ju uh, the Jubilee year to have our debts canceled. Uh, and this is what Jesus uh, spoke about in the very first sermon that he gave. Uh, Luke uh, uh, describes how uh, Jesus went to the temple, unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, and uh, where Isaiah was calling for a debt cancellation, uh, the, the year of the Lord, the Jubilee year, and uh, Jesus said, I've come to proclaim uh, the Jubilee year and to fulfill uh, this prophecy. And uh, Luke says that the people around him in, uh, uh, in his uh, hometown where he gave the, uh, uh, the uh, sermon uh, got angry at him, tried to drive him out, and started a whole... Uh, a political uh, fight between uh, the creditor interests, uh, who can, by that time had gained control of the Jewish church, uh, and Jesus, who said, wait a minute, this is, uh, I want to restore the original Judaism uh, well, with a debt cancellation in the Mosaic Law, uh, and we all know how it ended. Uh, he was put to death not because uh, he was talking about rescuing people from sins, but rescuing people from debt. And the word from sin and debt are the same because uh, in archaic language, uh, a debt, the word for debt uh, was originally the main thing that debts were taken up for, to pay for having committed a sin, namely personal injury. Uh, what we know in Indo-European culture is vergelt, uh, for killing somebody, uh, for injuring them, uh, for breaking an arm or whatever. Uh, this idea of uh, uh, sin is a, uh, is a debt, Jesus generalized, into the problem of his day, which were uh, debts in general. So what I ended up doing is writing not only a history of debt cancellations uh, and how they came to be and what the general philosophy was all the way from Sumer and Babylonia through uh, Judea and Israel, uh, but also uh, the history of how debt cancellation was woven into religion and uh, became the key of religious fighting all the way down through the Byzantine uh, epoch. Right. Now, you talk about how people get into debt. Um, usually, you know, the catastrophic things happen, illnesses happen, people get into debt, uh, and then you have these debt jubilees, the slate is wiped clean, and uh, the economies are restarted. Uh, I know when I was living in France, uh, the new president, I believe, or the new mayor of Paris, whenever they got elected, they would forgive all parking tickets. You know, this was... Uh, kind of a continuation of this theme. But uh, the, the big question, though, uh, Dr. Michael Hudson, is that we, we seem to have transitioned to an era uh, where we no longer believe in debt jubilees, but we have what I, I guess you could call it a credit jubilee. In other words, in the 2008 crisis, that was a debt-driven crisis. The policy to come back and address that was not to forgive the debts, but to bail out the creditors. Is this in historic change? Have we seen this historically? Have we seen it before? And is it a, a dangerous precedent? Because the debt jubilee seemed to work for thousands of years. Uh, this is something kind of new, it seems. What are your thoughts? Well, already in, in antiquity, you had uh, the uh, creditors, uh, the oligarchs, the wealthy classes, saying that uh, what is sacred is uh, not canceling the debts, but enforcing their payments. And already by the fourth century in Athens, jurors and mayors uh, throughout Greece were obliged to take an oath not to uh, enact any policy that would cancel the debts or redistribute the land. Uh, and so already way back then, they put, uh, the question was, what's going to be sacred? 
the creditor interests that lead uh, to bankrupting society and pushing it into serfdom, or the debtor interests <coughs> of uh, most of the population at large uh, that uh, in order to keep them from falling into bondage. Uh, so uh, that if, if you look at modern mainstream histories of Greece and Rome, they say Western civilization is founded uh, and differs from all other civ earlier civilizations with the sanctity of property. What they mean of the sanctity of property is really the sanctity of debt and the right of creditors to foreclose on the property of the population at large, to foreclose on the state and to really take over the entire economy. So you could say that uh, Western civilization is founded on the dynamic that led to serfdom in antiquity, and it's the same dynamic that you just described that we're going at today, reducing the population essentially to debt peonage. Uh, and that's the relevance of the study of antiquity, that what led to uh, feudalism then is the tendency of debt to grow more rapidly than uh, the ability to pay uh, that uh, people fell into debt, not only because they were sick and had to borrow, 75% of the debts in Babylonia were not borrowed at all. They were tax arrears, your parking tickets from France. Uh, uh, most, if most of the debts are unpaid taxes because uh, of the crop failure that prevents uh, uh, the rural population from paying taxes or because of uh, other problems, uh, then it's really the money to the state that was... Uh, uh, the main cause of debt. And today, of course, uh, the creditors have taken over the state, and the state is the Democratic Party's uh, uh, donor class, Wall Street, uh, and uh, that uh, you, you have a, an inversion of uh, the old uh, uh, original uh, Bronze Age uh, uh, recovery uh, program, uh, clean slates, to say debt is inexorable. We're not going to cancel the debts. We are only going to bail out uh, the creditors uh, and enable them to essentially reduce the rest of the population to uh, bondage where all of the income, all the economic surplus is paid for debt service, uh, not for tangible investment, not for rising living standards. Uh, and that basically, the fight that we're having today has been fought again and again, all the way from Babylonia uh, to the Near East, uh, to the biblical lands, uh, to Greece and Rome, and to uh, the Byzantine Empire. You know, um, I don't see this as often as I used to, but I used to see this phrase a lot, what would Jesus do? You know, it was maybe a bumper sticker or something. What would Jesus do? So let's go back to 2008 for a second. The global financial crisis. New president, Barack Obama, he's got a decision to make, bail out the debtors or bail out the creditors. So by the standard that you're talking about, the historical standard, the religious standard, the Christian standard, the Jesus standard, Jesus would have done the exact opposite to what Barack Obama did, Michael. Well, what Obama did, really, he said, who am I going to do, bail out my campaign contributors on Wall Street or bail out the people who voted for me? And he said, look, I represent my campaign contributors. And he invited them to the, wall, to, uh, the White House. He invited the leading Wall Street people and said, look, I'm the only guy standing between you and the pitchforks. You know, I'm gonna, uh, I, don't worry, I'm, I'm on your side. Uh, and we know that he repeated that 
two days ago at McCain's funeral. He said, McCain and I uh, uh, had no difference in policy at all. Well, here is McCain, one of the, uh, uh, the, the Keating Five, who uh, backed uh, the uh, savings and loan ripoff by Charles Keating uh, and pressured Alan Greenspan not to prosecute uh, not to uh, regulate the savings and loans. Uh, you, you have very clearly uh, Obama on the side of the creditors and uh, uh, the crooks. Uh, the, the, the difference between antiquity is today is the creditors normally use political assassination uh, of uh, almost every uh, leading uh, debtor advocate all the way from uh, uh, the Gracchi brothers in Rome to Julius Caesar, who, who uh, took a populist uh, pro-debtor uh, policy. Uh, well, today, uh, the creditor class only does that in Chile and Argentina uh, and third world countries. It hasn't done that uh, in the United States yet, because there really isn't any uh, discussion either uh, in the religious community or on the left realizing that the dynamic that's making people poor is primarily financial. It's debt. It's the financial system's uh, uh, dis, uh, dysfunctional relationship, uh, not uh, the, the old-fashioned idea that, uh, oh, the industrialists are exploiting the workers. Well, of course, corporate corporations exploit the workers, but now they've moved abroad to exploit foreign workers. Uh, again, it's largely a financial-driven austerity program uh, uh, that, that we're at. So yes, Jesus would have uh, bailed out, uh, would have canceled the debts uh, and written them, written off the bad debts like the German economic miracle did uh, and said, this is uh, the economic miracle. We're going to have a clean slate. Next time, the creditors should take responsibility and not make uh, bad loans. And uh, the function of the banking system should be to serve the economy not the economy should serve the banking system and uh, the takeover of uh, the 1% that controls most of the banks. All right, Dr. Michael Hudson, fantastic. Thanks for being on the Kaiser Report. It's always good to be here, Max. All righty. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Hudson. His new book is going to be called And Forgive Them Their Debts. Sounds like a must-read. If you want to catch us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. Until next time, bye, y'all.